Inside the halls of American hospitals, millions of people find comfort, healing, and support. But for many doctors and nurses, this couldn't be further from the truth. This podcast will dive into the shadows of American healthcare to investigate and uncover the abuse, control, and political power plays that leave the very people responsible for our nation's health broken and battered. We're sharing stories of professionals in medicine that have experienced horrendous treatment at the hands of a broken system that does nothing to stop the trauma. As the Association of American Medical Colleges states, long before the Me Too movement, women in medicine have instinctively banded together to counter a culture that too often tolerated harassment. From systemic trauma to abusive power to the unspoken rules of cover-ups and corruption, Mandy Irby and Phoebe will take you to the darkest corners of healthcare in America so you can have an inside look at bringing humanity back to medicine. Sensitive content warning. This podcast will share details of triggering subjects such as sexual assault and workplace violence. So if you aren't in a space to listen, respect your mental health and tune in again at another time. Hey, and welcome back to the Pulse Check Podcast. Today, we have a guest who's going to share a very detailed birth story from the nurse perspective and specifically nurse advocacy, patient advocacy, agency, and also mistreatment of consumers and of nurses. So again, we reiterate that this one might be difficult to listen to, though also very powerful. We'd love to hear your comments and responses in a comment section down below. But also we understand if you need to pause, come back to this, or fast forward a little bit. Some pieces may be activating. Thanks for listening. I am Mandy, and this is Hee Hee. Hi. Hi, everyone. We want to welcome Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hello. And Melissa, can you tell us just a quick little bit about yourself and why you wanted to be on the Pulse Check podcast today. Yes, sure. Anybody that knows me knows that being quick is not my strong suit, but I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Melissa Ann Dubois. I am a perinatal nurse and a certified childbirth educator and lactation counselor. I've been a nurse for about 15 years. I've worked in all sorts of perinatal settings, high-risk obstetrics, community hospitals. I've worked with doctors, midwives, residents, family practice physicians. I worked as an outpatient nurse in an OBGYN office. I was even a home birth assistant and visiting nurse for postpartum families during the pandemic. And starting in January, I'm going to be getting my PhD in nursing so that hopefully I can teach the future generation of nurses and do some research into the things I'm really passionate about within perinatal care. Hell yeah. Incredible. So that's me. Oh, I did it. That's a great introduction. Oh my gosh. You've been in a lot of places. And you just shared that with us before we started talking and you said that you have been doing a little bit of soul searching since <laughs> you filled out the, Hey, I want to be a guest on the podcast. This is what I want to talk about. We were going to talk in depth about some stories and you wanted to remain anonymous. And today, obviously you are not, you're on our YouTube channel and you're also <laughs> sharing your name with us. So can you tell me what happened in the last week? In the last week, it's made me decide to share my name. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what's really funny. Can I tell a funny story? So I don't know if you guys, I have three kids. I have three, pushed three babies out of my vagina. I'm very proud of that. And we were watching this Disney channel show called zombies. It is, it's a basically made for TV musical and it's all about standing up for what's right. And so (laughs) 
That's a good show. Honestly, I was moved. I was moved by the characters in this made-for-TV movie as my kids laugh at me as I'm getting choked up from a Disney Channel movie about standing up for what's right and speaking your mind and being loud and not backing down. And so I was like, you know what? I have to use my name. I need to use my voice for what's right. And I have had many consequences in the past for standing up for what's right and standing up for patients. But I know at the end of the day that I can sleep well at night knowing that I did what was right and not just followed stayed in the lines, right? So yeah, I wanted to use my name. So what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to talk about a specific patient. I wanted to come on this podcast because I recently, at the most recent hospital job that I had, they attempted to terminate me for being a patient advocate and standing up for a patient's wishes and what was right. And even though they had no legal standing to do that, I didn't violate any rules, any standards of care, any policies or procedures. I stood up for a patient. I was a patient advocate and they tried to terminate me. And so I was going to come on and talk about that specific situation anonymously, of course, Mm -hmm. to protect patient privacy and HIPAA. But I decided, I mean, this isn't a one-time thing. I've been a nurse for 15 years. This type of situation has happened to me hundreds and hundreds of times. And so I decided I'm going, I kind of made an imaginary story with details from all of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families I've taken care of, little pieces of all of those stories to make a story that is essentially what exactly happened to me recently. And the interactions that I had with the physician and the midwife towards the end of my story are what really happened. And so the details don't really matter because at the end of the day, I'm not alone. There are so many nurses that have been in my shoes that are in my shoes. And I'm sure that there are going to be a lot of nurses and patients out there who feel like maybe I'm telling their story. And I promise you, I'm not. (laughs) I am not violating any, any patient privacy or HIPAA with this story, but it's just so ubiquitous. And it's, it's one of the reasons why we have this really broken maternity care system. Yeah. And the pieces that feel like, oh my God, is Melissa telling my story? It's because you're not the only one that has that story. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people out there who were treated this same way, abused by the system. And you, the patient are made to believe, well, this was unique to me. Well, this was just my body failed me or thank God I was in the hospital or who knows what would have happened. No, no way. This is something that happens every single day, day in and day out. And millions of patients are harmed and millions of nurses are traumatized. And, you know, I was talking to you, Mandy, before we started recording that one of the ways that I found out who you were and started following your work was because after, you know, 12 years of nursing in a broken system, experiencing vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, a moral injury. I didn't have words for any of that. I just suffered for so long. And it wasn't until I saw an ad for basically supporting labor and delivery nurses with, you know, learning more about what vicarious trauma is and how to deal with your colleague, Krista Dancy at the Birth and Trauma Support Center. I took that webinar and my mind was blown open, realizing like I wasn't alone because I really did start to think that, you know, I just can't handle this job and maybe this isn't right for me. Through her work, I found your work and how to, you know, your trainings about being a trauma-informed labor and delivery nurse, which was right up my alley. Things that I've been trying to advocate for, things I've been trying to do, but what felt like in isolation. And then I realized, no, there are other nurses out there who know what they're seeing is wrong, who know there's a better way. And so I just want to say thank you to all the work that you're doing, because it's really helping people like me have a voice to be able to talk about what we're experiencing. Oh, thank you for saying that. Melissa, I remember (laughs) your villain era very clearly. (laughs) 
you came at me and you were like, no, we're not talking about this. I, this, everything, it's me here. I hear you. And I related so deeply with your energy in absorbing all of that. And I don't have all the answers, right? I'm sharing language as I'm learning too. I was still working at the hospital when I did that, or I had just left something like that and just coming into, okay, I have done this long enough. I have learned enough around this, that it is time to help others explore. We can do this together and how powerful it was for me to stand up outside of the silo that, and like that, what did you call it? Just by being by yourself. Being in isolation. Isolation. That's on purpose. Yeah. We I know. all feel isolated. So when we share things that are going on that is that are universal to the experience of labor and delivery nurses, everyone's like, holy shit. Everyone told me that this was a one-off. Thought yeah. this was a one-time thing. And very similar to the patient and consumer experience of every every birth is unique. Everyone's different. You're mistreated in the exact same way that the person <laughs> next door is being mistreated. <laughs> We've been taught this. And gets it. It's just to a varying degree, according to biases, social (laughs) is a social like elite classes, marginalized groups that we contribute to and systemic racism that's inside the hospital. So it is, it is on purpose. And it, when you talk about isolation, you felt isolated. What are the ways that you felt isolated and how did that happen for you in your work? So anybody who's ever stuck up for what's right, whether it is in your job or sticking up for the kid that's getting picked on, you realize that it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. And so if you are brave enough to use your voice many, many times in healthcare, especially, you are the only one. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if everybody in the locker room is talking about the same thing and that doctor's abusive and that nurse is abusive and this, that, and the other. If you're the one that actually says, no, enough is enough. And you use your voice. Oftentimes it's crickets all around you because everybody else is afraid because there are consequences. There are real life consequences. They tried to terminate me and intimidate me for doing exactly what I'm supposed to do as a nurse, which is be a patient advocate. It's in the nursing code of ethics. (laughs) Right. I noticed that you said that they tried to fire you for being a patient advocate, which speaks to the core of one of the biggest issues of nurses figuring out what is a patient advocate because it's never defined. And then when we do what we think that it is, we're threatened, we're bullied, we're punished, we're fired. And everybody around us is quiet, right? And it's like, we're constantly living in this world where we're being gaslit, where I'm looking around and I'm seeing a patient crawling up the bed, screaming, stop, pulling someone's hands out of her vagina and a provider that is not stopping. And everybody else in the room is not maybe they are feeling what I'm feeling internally, but what it seems like to, to me, and I know to others, especially if you're a newer nurse is, wow, why isn't anybody else upset by this, disturbed by this? Why isn't anybody more senior than me stopping this? Mm. And then you learn without even having to be told to stay quiet. And so it's like, you start to start to doubt yourself. Is is this really as bad as I think, Mm. you know? And it's obstetrical violence culture, it's rape culture, it's patriarchy, it's misogyny, it's all of these things that contribute to that because quote unquote, you know, quote, all that matters is a healthy baby, right? So anything else that goes on, it's just the means to an end and I'm done. I'm not 
staying silent. For 15 years, in various ways, I have spoken up and I've paid the price for it. And I'm not going to let them keep me silent. I'm going to keep talking. Because they'd rather you be anonymous. Yes. And not make anyone look bad. Absolutely. Also, don't let other nurses know that you think this way, because if you let them know that you think this way, then they may start thinking this way. No, no, no. They already think this way. All (laughs) I'm doing is letting them know that that isolation is fake. Yes. All in this together because we're all being abused. Can you tell us more about the intimidation and the firing attempt how do they attempt to fire oh mandy i would love to tell you all the details sit down ladies it's going to be a story i want to be very clear that this is not the actual patient story yes. that happened to me the day they tried to terminate me it is all of our stories right it's everybody's right. story we've all had these situations if you're a labor and delivery nurse listening you have definitely come across these situations so let's start with the soft call induction right? We have a patient that comes in for what we we say on the inside, a soft call induction. What does that mean? It means it doesn't meet medical criteria. And in this particular incidence, let's say it was for borderline oligohydramnios, right? Sure. Love that. that. This particular client, let's say that she went in for her 40 week appointment. They tried to convince her to be induced per the arrive trial at 39 weeks, but she put her foot down. She took childbirth class and she said, no, I don't want to be induced. So by 40 weeks, they said, oh, you know what? Your baby's measuring big. And you know, it looks like your, your amniotic fluid index is eight and five is right. low. So eight is close to seven and seven is close to six. This is close <laughs> to so five is when we would so many fingers. So it's right exactly. There. Right. So if we wait any longer, you could have a dead baby. So they pulled the dead baby card. And so now this patient is sufficiently freaked out enough to go into the hospital for an induction. She wants as minimal intervention as possible. She has hired a doula. She has a very supportive partner. She has taken childbirth classes. And they talk about all the pros and cons that doctors want to do, you know, mesoprostol. She declines. She wants a cervical balloon. So they place the balloon overnight and believe it or not, she gets a pretty good rest. They give her a short shot of morphine and she sleeps pretty good considering she's in the hospital and being bugged all the time and monitored, of course. And, and when she wakes up in the morning, the balloon is removed because it didn't fall out. So we know, so a cervical balloon is a balloon that is inserted. It's a soft silicone flexible tube that's inserted through the cervical canal, a balloon is blown up on top of and on the bottom of the cervix. And it basically squishes your cervix, trying to thin it out. And it irritates your cervix, trying to release your own hormones to get your cervix soft and ready for labor. And if it falls out, we know that you're at least three centimeters dilated because those balloons are about three centimeters in diameter. So this balloon we tugged wouldn't come out. So we know, we know she's not more than three centimeters dilated. Okay. And so They remove the balloon. The midwife says, why don't you eat? Why don't you shower? And then we're going to start Pitocin, which is questionable, but I'm not going to get into that because if she's not ripe enough, then we shouldn't be starting Pitocin, but that, you know, that's, that's for another day. So I come in, of course, I am doing a shift that I don't normally work on a day. I don't normally work. I'm doing days instead of evenings, you know, I'm all out of sorts, but I I did a favor and God damn me for doing a favor. (laughs) Never again. again. So I, you know, she takes her shower and she breaks her water in the shower. So she's very excited about this. She feels like this is a sign that her body is starting to go into labor. She starts to have these crampy contractions, but she's having a lot of back pain. So her doula and I are really enthusiastic. We click right away. We talk about spinning babies, which is something that I've been trained in that I'm really passionate about. We talk about optimal fetal positioning and how different positions that we can try and techniques can give this baby as much space as they need to 
turn into the best position for birth. And if the baby is not in the best position for birth, that could be why she's having back pain, but we can use positions to facilitate fetal positioning and that will help her labor progress. Cause if we have the baby in a good position that can help labor progress. So she's super excited about this. So we talk about intermittent auscultation. She's game for that. And I talk about the pros and cons. She wants to do that. So as we are getting her into probably a forward leaning inversion, or I something, was wondering, are you, is she going upside down? <laughs> yeah, I text the midwife that up. she broke her water. She's starting mm-hmm. to contract. She's super excited. She wants intermittent auscultation. Can you place an order? Mm-hmm. Right. Pretty standard, you know, but that's not according to what the midwife wants to do that day. So she promptly comes into the room. And she says she needs to go on the monitor that she can't have intermittent auscultation because she's being induced for a medical reason. So right then and there, it's like, wait a second, remember this like medical reason was not really real. Baby's getting bigger. The baby will be bigger if we wait anymore. Your fluid is normal now, but it won't be normal tomorrow, that kind of stuff. And so I did a non-stress test before her water broke before we let her get in the shower. And I did one after her water broke. It was a category one reactive strip. Baby was moving. Everything looked good. So as I am supposed to do, because it is my job as a nurse, right? So the American Nurses Association, you know, they talk about the four main principles of the nursing code of ethics, right? One of them is autonomy. Autonomy is recognizing each individual patient's right to self-determination and decision-making. And as patient advocates, Mandy, as we are, it's imperative that nurses ensure patients receive all the medical information, education, and options in order to choose the best option for them. And so one of the provisions of that nursing code of ethics is the nurse's primary commitment. Primary commitment is to the patient, right? Right. And to advocate for, protect the rights, health, and safety of the patient. Which means if they make a choice with that information, that is what we have to uphold. It's written in our job that we have to listen to their decision based on all the information we give. We have to ensure that they're getting all the information that we can give them to make that decision. And then we have to listen to the decision. Oh yeah. Regardless of how anyone else on the team feels, right? Regardless of how the midwife feels, the OBGYN, the nurse, your your charger, like anybody. Let me actually tell you what it says. It says the nurse has authority, accountability, and responsibility for nursing practice makes decision and takes action consistent with the obligation to provide optimal patient care. There it is. Okay. Right there. We have to. And it is within our authority. It says sometimes nurses will need to continue to advocate for a patient despite the wishes being verbalized because the medical team might not agree in those wishes. God wow. damn it. God. And when I looked up what is patient advocacy deeper and deeper and deeper in older texts that they published, it's misleading in the exact same way. Yes. It's confusing. And it is like upholding the hierarchy of medicine and the gendered hierarchy within medicine, which is, we know it's going to be really hard to do that because like literally no one cares, but you, so we say it here, but like in real life, we know it's not like that. And we're not actually teaching anyone else to do it or requiring it of anyone else. Good luck. You know what, Mandy and I, when we graduated from nursing school, we took an oath. We took an oath to that, to say that that's what we were going to do. And I take that very seriously. And I know you do too, Mandy. So that's one of, that's one of the reasons why I became a nurse. Right. It sounds so great. It feels so good. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I want to advocate for my patient's wishes. If my patient is exsanguinating and they say, don't give me a blood transfusion, 
I really, really want that patient to get a blood transfusion. But if she's saying I don't want one, then that's my job to advocate for her to not get one. And then go to therapy about it. Because I'm going to have a feeling about that, that I have to own then. So what did I do, right? Because the midwife now says, oh, you can't have intermittent auscultation per your wishes because you have this high-risk pregnancy and this medical induction. So I ask open-ended questions. I'm going to call the patient, Sally. Midwife, can you explain to Sally why you feel that she's too high-risk to have intermittent auscultation? I do want you to know that her non-stress test was category one and reactive. Sally has mentioned to me that this is part of her birth plan, that she understands the risks and benefits of intermittent auscultation. And it is nowhere in our policy that somebody who doesn't meet criteria for oligohydramnios can't have intermittent auscultation, right? right? I didn't say, I'm not going to do that. I didn't say, I disagree with you. I advocated for my patient by explaining what the situation was, what the patient wanted and what our policy says. Well, of course, I know that's not going to make the midwife happy. I'm not in the business of making midwives and doctors happy. I'm in the business of advocating for patients. My job is not to make doctors and midwives happy. It is to advocate for patients. I did it professionally. I, I did it per the evidence, per my authority, all of it. It was totally professional. It wasn't confrontational, but I did bring up the patient's wishes, which were in conflict to the midwives. So the midwife said, I need to go. I'm getting paged. She's like, I'll be back in 20 minutes. Please go on the monitor for the next 20 minutes so that we can monitor your contractions. And then we'll come back and I'll review the strip again. And we'll talk about intermittent auscultation. So she leaves. And I joke to the patient that she probably wasn't going to come back for a while because how many times has that happened to you, Mandy? 20 minutes. (laughs) We really want it to like not take that long, but like humans, (laughs) humans are fickle in that they ask questions and things happen that we can't anticipate. Yeah. So I know she's getting patient. Honestly, sometimes I want that to happen. Sometimes I'm like, if we ask for 20 minutes, we'll get three hours, you know? So that's exactly what happens. The midwife gets paged. I find out later the midwife got paged because a patient came in with her water broken with a breech baby. So that, that took some time, right? So she got paged. She was gone for three hours. They had to call the obstetrician in and the backup obstetrician do the C-section. And that whole process took about three hours. During that time, we rocked those spinning babies move. She right. was in sideline release and four-leading inversion and the whole nine yards, flying cowgirl, you name it. We were doing it, right? And she was really getting more active and we're doing the hip squeezes and the counter pressure and the music and the aromatherapy and the warm compresses. And it was like, we were like a well-oiled machine. It was awesome. It was exciting, right? I love right. being in those types of environments. Physiologic labor yeah. augmentation. And the whole time she's being monitored, of course, because we had said that she, please put her on the monitor until I get back. However, I was doing a really good job of keeping her on the monitor because I tell my patients and I tell my clients in childbirth class, it's not your responsibility to worry if the nurse has to keep coming in, adjusting that monitor. It's your responsibility to move in the ways that you need to for your comfort. And so who cares if the baby slips off the monitor? If the baby's in trouble, that's a different story. But if the baby's otherwise healthy, if they have to adjust the monitor a hundred times, that is their job. That is our job. And so I was physically holding that monitor on her belly to make sure we got the baby's heartbeat because I didn't want to hear about it from the midwife. And that required one-to-one nursing care. And I did it and we were doing great. Everything was doing great. Now, the baby's heart rate was tracing beautifully. It was showing no distress. I was tracing contractions, but they weren't perfect bell curves. They were kind of jaggedy, but that's because she was moving and we knew when they were coming and they were coming about every three to four minutes and they were strong and regular. And she was now after three hours of this, she was getting really transitiony, which was kind of surprising because it was her first baby, but she was vomited a couple of times. She was getting the shakes. 
she was feeling more rectal pressure. And so I'm like, oh my God, this is awesome. So we're really excited, right? So at that point, again, the midwife has not been in the room for three hours. She has not seen any of this that has been going on. She doesn't know that this patient has gotten more active. I haven't paged her to give her an update because she said she was coming back and there's no reason to page her. I mean, that's like saying, I'm going to page you because the sun is still shining. Today. Yeah, exactly. Like, Nothing's changed. We're nothing. on track. We're on track. She's in labor. So until the yeah. baby's coming out, I'm right. not required to, and you know, she got paged for a reason and we were in the groove. Three hours went by, not 16 hours. This comes into play later when they try to fire me. So midwife comes in now with the doctor. And again, I realize I find out later on that after that doctor got called in on a Sunday, you know, even though she is on call, she treats it like a day off. So she doesn't want to be there. And at this particular hospital, the midwives are very much treated like residents, not like midwives. And so the doctors really only come in for C-sections and operative vaginal deliveries. And so this doctor, I find out later, was talking at the desk about how she wants to go check this patient because if she's not going anywhere, quote unquote, and it's only been three hours since her water broke and a cervical balloon was taken out. So it's not like it's been 16 hours. The first time, mom, we're not expecting this baby to come out on day shift. But this patient, quote, isn't going anywhere. She doesn't want to have to be called in at night to do a vacuum or a C-section. So she wants to go check the patient now. Shit or get off the pot, as they say. So she comes in and the doctor introduces herself to the team. She sits down on the stool. She rolls up to the patient who is transitioning now, right? She is on her hands and knees moaning. She is really feeling pressure. She is clearly actively laboring. And she wheels in on the wheelie stool. And you know what that means? That means we're going to have a talk about C-section. And she's like, so you've been contracting for a while now. I can see on the monitor that these contractions, they're just not strong enough for active labor. Now, What's your red flag on that one? I'm telling you right now, these are strong AF. I can feel them literally in my butt. Tell me you don't know how to use the TOCO without telling me you don't know how to use the TOCO. It's not an internal monitor. The TOCO, the the hockey puck that they wear in their belly does not tell us the strength of the contractions. It only tells us how often they're coming. But of course, when you work within a medical model of care, unless you're contracting every two minutes on pit, that's not enough, right? So the doctor comes in, she sits on the roll stool. She says she recommends an epidural. So that she can, quote, use monitors to get a better idea of the strength of the contractions because she doesn't feel that these contractions are close enough together or strong enough. That's so condescending. Yes. She suspects that the patient has not progressed. This is what she's saying. And so, first of all, this is coming out of nowhere. We have not even done a vaginal exam on this patient. And she just comes in and this patient, again, has said she has a birth plan. She has a doula. She avoided a 39-week induction. She has made her wishes clear that she wants an unmedicated birth, low intervention as possible. She's not completely against an epidural, but really wants to try her best to go without one. And she hasn't asked for one. one. She right, hasn't right. asked for one. It's, not even come up. Isn't it a red flag? <laughs> I want to hear from the audience. Audience. Is it a red flag if someone comes into a room, doesn't read the room <laughs> at all, is supposed to be a professional in the space and understands birth physiology and comes in and like takes it all the way down and is like we're all excited everyone's excited I know I can feel what the room feels like we're like yeah "Yeah, you got it you got it everyone's quiet in between this is how it's supposed to be patting her head right (laughs) this is fine we're grooving you're like charting and you're like no problems here we're having a fucking (laughs) baby today and then they come in and like I need to talk to you about something I have zero information on it 
Exactly. But you should trust me about this. It's like, what? <laughs> no, we shouldn't because you're being a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. You're not picking up what I'm putting down. And so I am like completely flabbergasted. You have to understand that like this comes like you under this comes out of nowhere. You and this midwife have not talked at this point. No, right? because they've been in the OR. Point. Obviously, they haven't read any charting either. I'm charting all this. Vomiting. Like, why is it spiky? They're vomiting. Yes. They're vomiting. Like, (laughs) get some information first about it. You know, it's a toco. It says it outside of the room. It doesn't say IUPC. It says toco. So why would you go in with IUPC language and look like a fool? Because she wants what she wants. She wants what she wants. Makes everyone else look like a fool in doing that. It makes whatever you've said, which is like, this is how birth works. This is yes. what we would expect. This is what we're looking for. This is why I'm feeling your belly all the time. All these things, it makes you look dumb. Yes. Because everything you've said is now out the window because this person comes in as the expert and they are speaking totally out of context and should not have spoken at all in that room. They should have gotten some information. First. Thank you for saying that because that honestly was one of the things that was going through my mind that I had just told her how great she was doing and how this is yeah. progression and how this is real labor now. And, I believe and then, in you. You're yes. doing it. Look now, what your body just needed a little bit. This is what it, it feels like. You're what do you, saying. What do you mean? You think this is real labor, Melissa? You must be a fucking idiot because right. the doctor just told me that this is nothing. Right. And the doctor comes in and says, I recommend an epidural so that I can use monitors to get a better idea of the strength of the contraction. So now you and I both know that means internal monitors, but that's not what she says. So then what do I do? I advocate. I say, doctor, when you say use monitors to get a better idea of the contractions, are you talking about internal monitors? She says, yes. I look at Sally and I say, Sally, do you know what a fetal scalp electrode and an IUPCR is? She says, no. I look at the doctor and I say, doctor, can you please explain what those things are? So she does. Now, she also explains the fetal scalp electrode like a little clip that goes on the baby's head that, quote, doesn't hurt the baby, which is a Um, pet peeve of mine. (laughs) Because it's a lie. And again, I'm not saying I want to demonize any of these interventions. They all have their place. Just tell them truthfully. Just be honest. What the truth is. When the baby comes out afterwards with a laceration on their head from a fetal scalp electrode, they look at the nurse and say, why are you putting bacitracin on my baby's head? I thought it was just a clip. Right. And it's not. I've heard a patch, a sticker. Yep. Uh, go back in uh, and let's cup. talk about a suction <laughs> cup. Right. Let's put one on your head. Once you put one on your head, wear it in there and show yeah. them how it's so benign. Right. And you we don't do need that. it. There is no indication for a fetal scalp electrode. Now I am tracing the baby's heart rate. Fine. She is having symptoms of transition. She has not had a vaginal exam. And this doctor has come in and told her that I recommend an epidural so that I can put it in internal monitors so that I can prove that your contractions aren't strong enough. And then she says, when we find out that they're not strong enough, then we will start Pitocin. And if you do not progress in a couple hours on Pitocin, now we're going to go back to what she learned at her appointment. This baby is probably too big for you. And then this is where I'm saying that they are silently sinister, right? Because there's this obstetric violence pyramid that Kristen Pascucci at Birth Monopoly has, and it's fantastic. And at the top, we talk about like obstetric violence in the context of like assault, right? Forced procedures, use of physical force, legal coercion. But that's not the only thing that's obstetric violence. Being silently sinister is also obstetric violence. So what the doctor then does is she puts her hand on the patient's back and says, it doesn't matter if you have a vaginal birth or a cesarean, you're still a strong, amazing woman. You still grew this baby with your body. And she's saying all of this language that 
sounds very empowering, but really it is coercion. It is coercion to get her to start to doubt herself. She's giving this patient permission to completely go against her birth plan without reason to, because all that matters, our favorite phrase is a healthy baby. And that is also obstetric violence. That is normalizing the pathology of women's bodies, of birthing people's bodies. And you know, that we're going to save you and you don't get a gold medal for this. And everybody gets a baby at the end and you are still a strong, amazing woman. And you're going to get through this. Just in hearing you say that makes me, it's awful. It makes me want to vomit. This is what's happening. Now this patient is in transition, you know, emotionally, this is a very vulnerable time. You want to know a good way to stop labor. Fucking walk (laughs) in and tell them something's wrong and make up a bunch of stuff and then talk to them like their baby. Yeah. Now, of course the patient starts crying. And she's saying, why do I need Pitocin? This feels really strong. I don't like it any stronger. So she's starting to really doubt herself. And so I'm like, you're doing a great job. And so then I, again, start to advocate. Doctor, in my personal, professional opinion, I've been here for three hours. And really these contractions are far stronger than they were when the midwife left three hours ago. Is there a place for a vaginal exam right now? You know, Sally, would you want a vaginal exam to see how far along you are before you make any decisions? Because that might change your mind. So the doctor says, well, I don't see why we would need to put her through a vaginal exam. That's very uncomfortable when we could get her the epidural. And then I could do a vaginal exam and it would be much more comfortable. So again, we are using Mm -hmm. this idea Mm -hmm. of I'm doing this for you. Mm -hmm. Vaginal exams are painful, even though she didn't have any problems shoving her hands up this woman's vagina every appointment from 36 weeks on. For no now, reason. Now no, all of a sudden, <laughs> it's so inhumane to give somebody a vaginal exam in labor. Right. But not an right? epidural. An epidural that you don't isn't want. painful or uncomfortable. Let's just do that because it's easy. Yeah. So honestly, in in this moment, it felt like everything was spiraling out of yeah. control. Yeah. The patient is starting to panic. The doctor is talking nonsense. So again, Sally has expressed that she wants to avoid an epidural. Sally, you have the right to request a vaginal exam. I am concerned that if we sit you up for an epidural and the baby is coming, that we're going to have a baby with a needle in your back. With an anesthesiologist. (laughs) Yeah. So I strongly recommend that you consider a vaginal exam before we get anesthesia in here. Even if you're eight centimeters, I promise we can still get you the epidural because it's your first baby, but you know, you're feeling pressure. So it's your choice, but this is my recommendation, which again, it's just like losing my mind. What's the recourse? There's no normalized way at this point for you to get truth into this room because now you've been made to look like a fool. They are spouting nonsense, which you know that the room next door, what they're saying is, oh, this is what we do. We do exams every two hours. Right. Because that person already has an epidural. So what they're saying to that person is, we need to do the exam. I know it's only been an hour and a half, but like doctor has to go home. And so if we need her, we need to do it now because it's just more convenient. And like, what does it matter to you? You already have an epidural. What's 16 more cervical exams. But now (laughs) if it could potentially derail their desire, which doesn't have any bearing on what's going on, it shouldn't have any bearing. So there's like no recourse for you to bring in someone who's like, what the fuck? We wouldn't say this about a heart surgery like oh no why would we test let's just do what I feel because too many providers just give the advice in the moment that is going to get the outcome that they want 
So they you're think, right. That think same it'll get the outcome. That yeah, that same think. doctor will tell the person next door you need an vaginal exam. Yeah, because that's going to benefit what they need, and this one you don't. The, the most ridiculous thing about this vaginal exam is that after this patient broke her water, and we had to deflate the balloon so we know her cervix is less than three centimeters. They the do. The midwife was insistent on a vaginal exam. Yeah. And the patient was like, but I just broke my water and I really would like to avoid vaginal <laughs> exams because I heard they increase your risk of infection. And you're and right. The midwife, the midwife right. was upset. Like, yeah. but, but we need to know, we need to know where you're starting. And I said, again, as an advocate, well, we know we did have to deflate the balloon. So we know that her cervix is less than three centimeters. And Between I said, midwife zero. would knowing the difference between zero and three change your recommendation or plan of care. I didn't say we disagree with you. I didn't say, no, she doesn't want that. I said, can you help Sally understand how this exam will change your plan of care? Of course, she didn't have an answer to that. And then she got paged and she left. So again, three hours ago, they were asking for a vaginal exam on someone we knew wasn't in labor. Now they're saying we're not going to do a vaginal exam because that would be too inhumane. So the last two things that happen, and then I get called out of the room. So the patient now is obsessed with the fact that they said Pitocin. She is spiraling because she's like, I can't handle Pitocin. I can't do Pitocin. This is so hard. I'm going to need an epidural if you're going to start Pitocin. And so the midwife says to her, and this is a direct quote. Again, this is a direct quote that I've heard from this midwife and other providers in the 15 years that I have worked. She said, well, you signed up for an induction. So if you're not going to let us do Pitocin, then why are you even here? And so- now we're shaming that person. You consent to this. You can't unconsent to this. This is the it. next step. You yes. asked for this. And then the doctor put her hand on this patient's back, put her face next to her face and said, oh, honey, you and I both know that these aren't strong enough. And so at that point, I was literally ready to rip somebody's face off. <laughs> I was enraged. I was speechless. I could not believe And I don't know why I couldn't believe because I've seen it so many times, but I was, and so I looked at the patient. I said, if you need time to think about this, you can, if you would like a vaginal exam, you can let us know what you want to do. We're here to support you. And at that point, the doctor was infuriated with me. And she looked at me and said, Melissa, can I speak to you outside of the room? And I said, I would love to speak to you outside of the room, but I am actually concerned she is going to have a baby. And so you need to get a nurse in here sit with her because I do not want to leave her alone. And so the doctor goes out, gets a nurse, brings the nurse in. I step out to the desk. Now I am also upset that I have to leave my patient because I am honestly at this point, very concerned that she is in transition and going to have a baby. Right. What if she decides like F them all, let's just do this and be done. She could definitely have a baby. I feel like I'm abandoning my patient in that moment. So at the desk, the doctor is standing with her arms crossed with her back towards the closet. We're at the nurse's station. The charge nurse is there. This midwife is there. All of my colleagues are around. And she points at me and she says, we need to be a united front. Otherwise, the patient will lose trust in me as her provider. It is inappropriate of you to question me and my plan of care in front of my patient. This is my patient. And I have an established relationship with her. You are just meeting her today. You are interfering with the doctor-patient relationship. So 
I am trying to hold my shit together. I'm going to be honest because I, there's a thousand things going through my mind. The fact that my patient's about to have a baby in the room without me. The fact that she was just infantilized and shamed and coerced into something that she didn't want or need. That's important. She didn't need any of those things. And the fact that I have suspicions that were then later confirmed that this doctor just wants to get this over with, quote unquote, so she can go home and not be bothered in the middle of the night by someone having a baby as an obstetrician, right? And, you know, God forbid a baby come when you're an obstetrician. Yeah, yeah I know. It's just shocking how, like, we're all so weird about this goal that we know is going to happen. Yeah, well, also, seriously. you signed up for this, right? Patients sign up for induction. Yeah, yeah. Be an obstetrician. The obstetrician literally signed up for this call. You started your day knowing you were on call. This person didn't sign up for interventions, didn't sign up to be abused or mistreated. And she's outside the room in front of what? 10 other fucking people who keep their mouths shut, which gets me fired up. That is screaming at you saying, let me do my abusive measures quietly. Exactly. If you weren't here, I'd get this patient to do whatever I wanted so much easier. No one says anything. Were there people around you, Melissa, when you were being berated like this? Like yes, colleagues. All of my colleagues. Yes. And this is not the first time I've been berated. I've been berated hundreds of times. I have had instruments thrown at me in the operating room. I have been screamed at. I have been told, look at this nurse trying to tell me how to do my job. I have it witnessed and experienced so much, not just covert violence and horizontal violence and bullying, but overt <laughs> things that anybody else in any other profession would get fired for. But because doctors have contracts and it's legal nightmare for the hospitals to break them, they get away with it. There's more reasons why they get away with it, because that is not the reason why those nurses shut their mouths. There's other reasons why they get away with it. A whole culture of fear, a whole culture of abuse, persistent, consistent cycles of abuse that are continued. So, you know, that doctor was making a point to every other person in that space as part of her ongoing cycles of abuse with them. And again, in this particular instance, although I have been screamed at, she wasn't screaming. She was very controlled with what she was saying, with telling me it is inappropriate. You are unprofessional. You are interfering with a doctor patient. You're not following doctor's orders. She was nailing me to the cross. She was going to use this language later to get you out of your work. She needed to use the language. She was practicing the language right then. What can I do? How can I speak for the patient? Just the same way she was doing in the room. It all Mm -hmm. sounds very similar of... Well, this all sounds right, but it's not. It's not actual facts. It's not so I, I've been a nurse for 15 years. I am a strong, intelligent, fierce advocate. And I know when I'm right. And I know what I did for that patient was right. And so I stuck up for myself. And I said, it is my job to be a patient advocate. I did not question you. I asked questions. Those are not the same things. And I just as professionally and just as calmly outlined, I said, what you just did in that room was as if you walked into an ICU, never laid eyes on a patient, never spoke to the nurse and didn't read any of her charting and then wrote orders. You just wrote a plan of care for a patient that you did not know anything about. And that is wrong. And 
I said, that is not the way that some of your colleagues practice. Many of your colleagues will speak to the nurse before going in to speak to a patient on someone they have not laid eyes on for the entirety of their hospitalized labor. And she was furious of that. And the midwife looked at me and said, well, if you want to talk to the manager at the next department meeting about changing the policy that providers have to speak to the nurse before talking to the patient, then we can do that. And I said, I don't need to change the policy. That is the way it's supposed to be. Right. We are part of an interdisciplinary care team. I do not answer to you. I answer to senior nurses. And I am a valued member of this healthcare team. And my notes and my assessment and my professional opinion is important. And the fact that you went in there and started to write a plan of care without consulting the person that has spent all of the time at the bedside is unprofessional and inappropriate, not the fact that I asked questions. So, of course, that didn't make them happy. <laughs> so at that point, the father pokes his head out of the room and says she wants an epidural. Sally wants an epidural. And so I said, okay, we'll be right She's in. She's got a head on the perineum. Exactly. So I looked at the doctor and I said, I need you to check her before we call anesthesia because I really think that this baby is coming. And she looked at me stone cold in the eyes without saying a word, picked up the phone and said, Paige, anesthesia to labor and delivery. <laughs> Hung up the phone and walked away. So then I walked into the room and I checked the patient myself. Right, because what? we don't fucking need that. We don't she have was any eight, a hundred and plus one. So yeah. she was- in transition, right we know. Yeah. I mean, this but is you, a remarkable progress. You remarkable didn't do that progress. without discussing with the patient, I know. And even though this is a made up scenario, these things do happen. I am with you. I almost was like, wait, they checked her after the balloon, right? Because they have to check her, even though you were very clear, like what we know her cervix is, because I know how that is done. Like, no, we have, mm -hmm. we always do that. It's we for residents to. to practice their cervical yes. exams and to double check that it is a three or a two. They have a narrow window of what it could be. And it's very helpful in education to continue that, like to further their education. So they right. just say, it's even written, like do a cervical exam. Yeah. It's not necessary. It still should be a discussion. But I know you went in there and you were like, hey, I hear you, you are hurting. You know what happens when people are in transition? Everyone asks for an epidural. If that's <laughs> you, I'm here for you. Yeah. If you think that you need to push, I'm here for you. But also here's what could happen. You could lift a leg with an anesthesiologist here. That is sticky. I want you to just be aware of what could happen. I know you went in there and talked to her and she Absolutely. was like, well, I don't want that. I do yes. want to have a baby. Yeah. And one was correct in their assessment. And guess is that labor was moving forward. She was moving forward. And with that information, she can then either update her decision yes. based on that information or not update their decision and just right. say, make the doctor run. I really now really want an epidural. And yeah. that's what happened because at that point, her confidence had been shattered. And, and also she was in transition and I've had three babies and it is hard. So I'm right. not faulting. I had two epidurals before my home birth. I'm not faulting anybody for getting an epidural. And so she asked for an epidural and again, she's a prime ep, so she's eight. So I am not expecting her to deliver before the epidural comes right. either. I assured her that as long as she's not pushing, we could get her the epidural. Yeah. So we get the epidural doctor comes in. Of course, she starts spontaneously bearing down during the epidural procedure, but she's the baby is up, tolerating right? it and she's doing a great job sitting up. And so once we lay her down, she opens her legs. She says, I feel like I have to push. And the baby's hair is on the perineum. Wow, that was fast. <laughs> I don't even have to check. There's right. a little tiny tuft of hair coming right. out between her labia. Or ten. So <laughs> I call the midwife and I put Paige and I say, I need a provider in here for delivery. 
and 10 minutes goes by and I'm scrambling to get the room set up. Cause of course I haven't set anything up. <laughs> right. You've been arguing <laughs> Three hours with ago, she got a cervical balloon removed. I haven't set anything up yet. I've been doing spinning babies with her. I've right. been providing labor support. And so we're scrambling and 10 minutes goes by, you know, I'm just telling the patient, listen to your body, do what you need to. So she's doing just some grunting and whatnot. And everybody's tolerating everything. She's finding positions that work for her. The baby's not coming out yet, but I'm like, Mm -hmm. where is this provider? Paige again, I need a provider for delivery and still no provider. So the husband now gets upset and he says, where is the doctor? And he walks out of the room and he sees the midwife at the desk and says, my wife is going to have a baby. You need to come in here now. So the midwife was at the desk the whole time that I was paging her, but it's a power move. I have had so many times doctors tell me I'm not coming in till she's crowning. And I say, Oh, she's crowning. And they're like, she can't possibly. I've caught so many babies because attendings refuse to believe me that a patient has gone as fast as she has. And I am calling and I'm text paging and I am paging their secretary and I'm saying, she is going fast. You need to get here. And then I end up catching the baby. And then it's an incident report and a whole lot of extra work for me. And then it's, why didn't you call me soon enough? Why didn't you give me more time? Right now in the room, I'm being berated by a clinician who's telling this patient, this dumb nurse didn't call me with enough time. Right. Even though they've seen me paging the doctor, they've seen me on the phone, but it's all about saving face. This has happened to me so many times. And so that's what happens again. It's a power play. And so the midwife does come in the room and the patient pushed the baby out in 37 minutes. And I just want you guys to take a guess at how much the baby weighed. Cause you know, she was told that the baby was super big. Oh, my guess no. is seven, four. <laughs> seven, four. My guess is seven, eight. Since this is an imaginary patient, there's no real number, right? But <laughs> always less Damn than it. eight. <laughs> less than eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, less than eight, definitely not 10. It's like always seven something, right? So this this patient, thank goodness they have a healthy baby and a healthy birth giver at the end. Um, And they're not really recognizing the trauma that they just went through. And it's not my responsibility to walk them through that in that moment because we're trying to create this happy memory. But yeah, I was fuming. I was angry for her. I was angry for me. I was angry at the system. I was angry at... Just the fact that in 15 years, nothing has changed. It's all still the same. And women are dying and birthing people are dying and babies are dying. And it's, it's embarrassing and it's pathetic and it's unacceptable. And we know that these types of behaviors disproportionately affect marginalized communities and people of color and younger people, birthing people and people who don't speak English. Not everybody has a nurse like me or you, Mandy, that will put their neck out there because guess what happens? They tried to fire me for that. So when I came out of the room, even though I had broken no laws, no rules, no policies, no protocols, I didn't go outside of my scope of practice. I was asking questions. I was not directly agreeing with the doctor. I didn't say, you don't have to do that. She said, no, I didn't speak for the patient, did all of the things that per my code of ethics required to do as a nurse. And when I stepped out of the room, because of course my shift is over now, And I have 18 years of charting to get caught up on the charge nurse who stood silently while I was being berated by this clinician came to me and said, I'm so sorry, please don't be mad at me. But 
the doctor paged the nursing supervisor and said that you were creating a hostile work environment. And so the nursing supervisor required me to put in an incident report. I just want you to know that I tried to be as non-biased as I could, but I had to do it because she told me I had to. And so I put in my own incident report about how she created a hostile working environment. I charted till I died and then I went home and sobbed the entire car ride home because, you know, I reached out to some friends to vent because birth workers need each other. And they all told me the same thing that I've been hearing for 15 years, which is you made a difference for that patient though. That's what counts, right? And you know what? It does count, but it's just not enough anymore. It does count, but the amount of emotional toll, physical toll on my health, my physical health that it takes to constantly be in a state of fight or flight where I work, to constantly feel like I have to protect patients against abusive coercive providers is a big load to carry. And I am not the only person carrying it. And so a few days went by and I got a phone call from the director of pediatrics and maternity services. So this is the person that is above my boss, my manager of labor and delivery. And she asked me what happened on that shift. And I gave a brief summary of that. I advocated, I was professional and in line with my code of ethics, but the provider did not like that. And so that's why the incident reports were filed. And at that moment, she proceeded to tell me that I should have updated the doctor more frequently, that the patient was active. And I shouldn't have spent so much time at the bedside because the patient had a doula and I should have been able to step outside of the room more often and give face-to-face updates to the doctor about that patient's progress. And that it was my responsibility to be a united front And then she said, when I explained that this was against the patient's wishes, that the patient has a written birth plan, hired a doula, it is documented in her chart that she declined an induction at 39 weeks. And all of these things are well-documented that I was not, quote, pushing my own agenda, but fighting for what the patient wanted. She said, did I ever stop to think that the doctor recommended the epidural out of mercy for the patient, that the doctor felt it was necessary due to how much pain the patient was suffering, that the doctor needed to give the patient permission to change her birth plan because too many people get caught up in their plans and you can't plan for birth. Saviorism much? So many problems with that. So again, that phone call was not about finding out what my side of the story was because the next step she said was that she had already removed me from the schedule for the rest of the week until she could quote, review the patient's chart and make a determination about what next steps to take. So I said, wait a second, you haven't even read the patient's chart. <laughs> There's a theme here. You're- you didn't call for information. If you wanted information, you would have read the chart. And so here's the best part. I said, you can't fire me because I had already quit. Three <laughs> weeks before I had given my notice to my manager that by the end of December, I was going to be leaving because I'm starting graduate school in January. And so this was in October and I had made a promise to my manager that I would stay on until the end of December because of the holidays and because I didn't want to leave them short for the right. next schedule right. so that I would, I would continue to work through the end of the next schedule. And then at the end of December, that would be my last day and I would start graduate school in January. So they're trying to fire somebody who had already Jesus. and stayed on as a favor because we are short staffed. And we are paying out the nose for travelers. And I am an experienced nurse and we are hard to come by nowadays because they are driving us out of the field 
in droves. There are shifts all around this country that are staffed with only inexperienced labor and delivery nurses. Oh. There are people taking charge that have less than five years labor and delivery experience. But None isn't that exactly what they wanted to happen in that case? In order to get this person through in the way that worked for providers, they needed someone to be a united front, which is scary AF to hear if I were a consumer that everyone was told in their every staff meeting to be a united front against me. My mm -hmm. insurance is paying you. I'm paying you. And they get so caught up with like, people shouldn't have birth plans because you can't plan for birth, but you're planning a united front against me. It's like, so what? messed up. <laughs> I do need to plan for that because I have no one now, even though you keep writing in the nursing education books that the nurses are my advocate, you're teaching them and you're projecting onto them and you're requiring that they do the wishes of their provider. Here, they just keep publishing this like fake patient advocacy language. Absolutely. And if there are any nurses listening, I want you to know it is not your responsibility to read doctors' minds and read nurses' minds. It's not your responsibility to blindly agree with anything, especially if it's going to be harmful to a patient. How many doctors, Mandy, have you worked with that cut episiotomies as routine care? Yeah. Whereas the doctor that works in the same office as them doesn't. And so if Dr. A is on call for that patient, they say you need an episiotomy, but Dr. B for the same practice, if they lucked out and got Dr. B, they would say, you don't need an episiotomy. It is not my responsibility to tell that patient, you have to have an episiotomy. It's my responsibility to say, an episiotomy is an elective procedure. If the baby is not in distress. You have the right to say yes or no. What are your wishes? What would you want? Facts. Um, this provider doesn't go by evidence-based medicine. These managers, they throw nurses under the bus by just catering to the providers because providers have a lot of power. They can say, I'll take my deliveries to another hospital. And if you're a struggling community hospital, that's a big deal. It might not be a big deal at a big academic medical center that has tons of doctors, but if you're a community hospital that only has one or two practices delivering there, and they say, I'm going to take my deliveries to another hospital, that's incredibly powerful. So it's a system in which you're at a disadvantage if you do what's right and patients suffer. And I did a lot of soul searching after that. I was getting ready to fight. I was getting ready to hire a lawyer. And I realized I can't fight for a job that I already quit. At some point, someone else has got to take up this torch, right? But it was infuriating to me to think that even though I had already quit, my paperwork had already been processed, that this experience was going to be chilling to the other nurses on this unit that saw that I was no longer there, that saw that I was removed from the schedule, that heard about the confrontation between Dr. X and Melissa at the desk. And I didn't want that. I wanted to fight so that I could show that I wasn't going to be intimidated, that you can too, you can stand up. And if all of the nurses do this, then they can't fire us all. Right. They Take all of us though does take all of us. And unfortunately, too often, nobody else is willing to have your back. And yeah. you know what that um, allows for? It allows for the hospital system to control that narrative. So by you standing up, you were really being able to get the truth out there and say like, the hospital PR might spin this however they want to spin this to look like however they want it to look like in the community. But I'm telling you right now what happened in these L&D rooms over the last 15 years. If you would go away and be quiet, the hospital would have this narrative under wraps, however they want it to be. Mm -hmm. It's really important that people like you, Melissa, are speaking up, even if 
they do work every day to squash us. What you're saying is the physicians or the providers have a leg up and the hospitals listen to them more because their work is billed and nursing work isn't billed. We're part of the facility fee. That make you feel. (laughs) Sheets, bedding, nursing care. You can tell a sheet what to do. You can tell the bedding what to do. So you just go around directing what everyone else does because the stuff that gets billed is what ultimately is respected and what's listened to. And that's shown through language, through conversation, through pseudo policies, through real policies, through unit culture and we can see that outlined in ways in the story of this fake event story that I can very much relate to. And I know a lot of nurses and consumers and healthcare staff and residents can relate to. They see this and this is not what they learned in school. They did not think that they were going to be having to direct these insubordinate nurses every <laughs> step of the way. They were told that they were practicing medicine. And now all of a sudden wow. they're like, herding cats. We're all told Mm -hmm. all of this different language. And then what you're saying is what gets billed is priority and they end up getting to kind of do whatever they want because they say the right words and they use the right language that flies and the hospital turns their eye away from it because they need to make the money. Their bottom line is at stake. Because we live in a country here in the United States with a for-profit healthcare medical industrial complex. (laughs) And it's all about the money, follow the money. I'm keeping positive thinking my next step is grad school. And hopefully I can use that education position to further the cause. But I had to lick my wounds and nurse these wounds for a while because it really hurt to know that, you know, even though I got tons of text messages from the nurses that I had worked with and that friends that knew me that said, it's not you, it's them. And you do what's right for the patient. And that's all that matters. And it's just, it's unfortunately not not all that matters. It's (laughs) not, it's just not. And the amount of advocacy that goes into that and the amount of energy and the amount of internal work that goes into that, that it didn't make a damn difference. It affected that person's birth permanently. It affected their whole room. Their whole support system was affected by that. Their whole story of their birth is affected by that. Their baby will be affected by that. Everyone around them will be affected by that birth story. It will go on for generations. Just like you were affected by that deeply and forever. So it's still really harmful to say, and I try not to say it. I do believe it. I do believe labor and delivery nurses have the most impactful position in our society. I believe it because of that, because generation for generation is affected. We can affect the narrative around birth. We affect culture because we have such a direct link to the stories that are written within births in the U.S. right now because they're in the hospital. No, I don't want them to stay in the hospital. No, I don't want to keep this power. No, I don't think we have any real earning of this authority mm-hmm. or power or effect mm-hmm. on birth culture. But here we are right, having to take responsibility for the impact that we have. We truly, truly have a massive impact on our society. And our advocacy is thwarted so efficiently and mm. regularly and consistently 
that we're doing more damage and more harm often at the bedside than help even when we're advocating because our culture still sees providers as top of the hierarchy. They continue the mistreatment. They continue the abuse. They continue the misogyny. And every single nurse that has been abused and negatively affected by it holds that trauma as well. Their nervous systems are trying to protect themselves as well. Keep a job, stay in the, you know, stay in the safe zone. They don't mean it, but we do it. We all do it. I had a sort of feeling during this story. I know you had a sort of feeling there during this story. The listeners are having to stop, rewind, fast forward later. <laughs> and I respect that and encourage that because we have not been taught how to manage that and how to handle that. And Unfortunately, that is our responsibility when we see that we're in abusive situations. It is our responsibility to manage and to kind of ground ourselves and regulate our nervous system. But all of the amount of all of the advocacy, like cannot keep telling each other the story of we are making a difference for that one person because you made a powerful difference on that patient, but it did not, it was not siloed. It was not in isolation of everyone else's impact with that patient. And you right. can't control any of that. Like you said, none of that is your fault. You witnessed it and it impacted all of you. Just like y- your impact impacted everyone in that space. You have no responsibility. What they did with that impact, hopefully they talked a lot about it. And we're hoping that the doula helped with that debriefing yeah. and helped with, oh my gosh, remember your power? Remember when you connected with that nurse? Remember that sick nurse that we had? Like, that's amazing. <laughs> That's what we want to hold on to. That's what we want to like put as our North. And so when we go find a pediatrician for our baby, we want them to be like Melissa. When we go find a therapist (laughs) for our family to really process this, we want them to be like Melissa. We want them to advocate for what I've said and let me change my mind and accept me for who I am. We want that to be in our language with each other. And as parents, hopefully that's what they did. Right. Yeah. And I got a huge hug from all all members of the birth team afterwards and thank you and tears and you're so special to us and we never forget you. We couldn't done it without you. And I do hold on to that. Great. I always say to them, you could have done this without me. It's you. You're amazing. Your experience in birth can really make or break your entire parenting experience. Not that damage can't ever be repaired, but setting someone up for feeling empowered and safe and loved is going to be a hell of a lot different of a postpartum experience than feeling demoralized, shamed, weak, you know? So I I know that they did see somewhat of how I positively impacted the experience, but it's not about me and we can't do this alone. And there's going to be so many more. And that doctor won and, you know, people like, no, she didn't, but she kind of (laughs) did. Because we know enough to do immediate irreparable damage to birth situations. We know enough And she acted like she didn't know about birth physiology. She ignored everything she knew on the outside and worked her way in to an incredibly vulnerable person in an incredibly powerful and at the same time vulnerable situation and used her position of power and authority to do her bidding and to get done what she wanted done, whether she did it and knowingly did it, consciously did it or not, we know enough to know when people are going to make decisions based on which part of their brain that they're using. I don't care if you've been in one birth or 10,000 births, you know exactly those points. You know the look in people's eyes, you know when they're focused inside on their body and 
All of us have the potential to do that when we walk in. We could do that. And that's what makes it very, very difficult. And why, Melissa, you did so much extra work in that space because you knew your position of authority with that patient as well, your position of authority with that doula and with that partner. And yet that person was able to come in and make a huge, profound impact because of where that patient was in their birth process. And, you know, we hear a lot about the burnout of healthcare professionals. I know you guys talk about that a lot in this podcast, and I'm empathetic to that. I know I was an OBGYN officer for four years. I worked with some of the most compassionate, skilled, intelligent doctors and nurse practitioners that were constantly trying to do what was right for their patients, but were being forced to see three patients in a 15 minute oh my- But we can no longer use that as an excuse. Right. We're all traumatized. The system is broken, but that is not a good excuse to continue to harm other people. And there are some people who knowingly harm. I have worked for some doctors and midwives that are sadists. I'm going to be honest. They're right. sociopaths. It, I do not know how anybody can operate their life the way they do, but most of the people that are doing yeah. harm do not realize that they are. But as you say so well in your training, Mandy, once you know, and you can't unknow, it's not enough anymore. There's no way that the obstetricians in this country do not know that we have a rising maternal mortality rate since the year 2000. There's no way that the obstetricians in this country don't know that we have some of the worst infant mortality rates in the developed or industrialized world. So now you know, you can't unknow it. Look inward. 90% of the deliveries in this country are attended by OBGYN doctors. 90. Nine out of 10. The problem is not nurses. It's not midwives. It's not doulas. It's not patients being too sick or too fat or too old. It's you. We're not able to move birth out of hospitals fast enough. So we do have to take responsibility for what we have to take responsibility for. And they wanted it that way, right? They, they literally stole it from midwives and said, no, obstetricians in hospitals. This is how birth has to be. We'll keep you safe. But now that it's time to have the talk about responsibility, nobody wants that. The only responsibility is to keep you alive. Everything else they think is not necessary. And that's. Like you said, talking across the board in generalized terms, there are pockets of people, but we can say it's not all nurses and we can say it's not all doctors. We can say it's not all midwives, but not for very long. Right. And also the excuse. It's like you said, it's embarrassing. When someone says my nurse treated me poorly, my doctor treated me poorly, my midwife treated me poorly. When I hear someone say my nurse treated me poorly, I say, I'm sorry. I believe you. I've worked with nurses that treat people poorly. Just because I'm a nurse doesn't mean that I can't understand that some nurses can treat people poorly. So I don't know why there's so many other practitioners out there that if someone says this doctor really screwed me, they're like, couldn't possibly be true. Doctors don't do that. Well, that's why we really appreciate you sharing this story and sharing this conversation because I know it's really gross and fresh and it's really, really important. And we don't often share stories like this. We don't often want to get into the examples of harm. It's fucking activated when they hear this for a variety of reasons. You don't have to have been in those spaces to be activated by mistreatment and harm. But it is important to share stories that connect us even in the harm and remember and realize and help retrain our brain that we are not in isolation. This is happening everywhere. It's happening on purpose. It's part of the systemic harm that's going on because of the bottom line that is not human centered. It's not trauma informed and it is our responsibility to make the change. And there's community in it find community and we have to stick together and keep reminding each other about it. And I think that's the only way to do it is because we're able to share 
What are you doing to learn about your nervous system? What books are you reading? Who are you talking to? Who are you sharing this with? That's not trauma dumping. It's helpful and it's growth and it's encouragement of you do what you have to do to keep doing the work and not just that you're making such a difference. (laughs) Not helpful anymore. It doesn't feel right. Thank you for sharing your story and for doing the work. I'm so excited to hear that you're in your PhD program. I can't wait to see what you do with that. Melissa, you're such a catalyst. Please don't stop. I know it's heavy and I know it's hard work. And I know that it feels like a lot to be kind of that top person on that pyramid saying, here's the way, here's where we can go. Please don't stop. We need people like you. And without that, our system's never going to get better. Thank you, both of you, for your kind words, for the work that you do, for this brilliant podcast, and Mandy, all the trainings that you do. Like I said, as I home through tears that night after that encounter with that position, and I was like, <laughs> I'm going to email Mandy and he, he. <laughs> Yes, you know, I love you, it. You always say like, oh, reach out on Instagram if you have a story to tell. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to email them before I change my mind. Thank you for reaching out and for not keeping quiet, because that's yeah. that's how it's been happening is they get to be sneaky and covert and not anymore. You should be afraid that your story is going to be out there on the internet or a story (laughs) like yours. And if your story sounds like a story on the internet, it's close enough. There's an issue. Yeah. Right. I know. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of the Pulse Check Podcast. We also want to give a big thank you to Melissa for her storytelling, sharing of her experience, and for her time this week on the episode. If you have comments or questions, please give us a comment down below. We would love to hear your response to hearing Melissa's story today. Also, it's very helpful if you want to give us a five-star review on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you're listening to your podcast. It helps us reach more healthcare professionals and consumers of healthcare to help uncover what it's really like inside of medicine. We'll see you on Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. We wanted to leave you with a quick stat and something to think about until we see you next time. According to a 2018 report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the prevalence of sexual harassment in academic medicine is almost double that of other science and engineering specialties. This presents a serious danger that ripples into patient safety, clinical outcomes, and burnout, which leads to costly loss of talent. How much safer could medicine be if nurses and physicians weren't also battling sexual harassment day in and day out? If you or anyone you know has a story to share, please contact us on Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. We'd love to share your story.